Ten years ago this year, the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression hit the United States and spread to other countries, including the United Kingdom. Then and now, with former Fed Governor Kevin Warsh and former Chancellor of the Exchequer George Osborne. The Chancellor and the Governor on Uncommon Knowledge now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Kevin Warsh served as Special Assistant to the President for Economic Policy and Executive Secretary of the White House National Economic Council in the administration of George W. Bush. And from 2006 to 2011, he served on the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, better known, of course, as the Fed. Mr. Warsh is now an advisor to a number of companies and a fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford. First elected to Parliament in 2001, George Osborne served as Chancellor of the Exchequer in the conservative government of Prime Minister David Cameron from 2010 to 2016. Roughly speaking, by the way, Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is a medieval title, corresponds to both our Secretary of the Treasury and our Director of Office and Management in the Budget. Runs the money and the budget of the entire government and represents one of the ancient great offices of state. Mr. Osborne is now editor of the Evening Standard in London and a visiting fellow again here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Kevin and George, welcome. It's good to be here. What happened? Crisis of 2008. Actually, what I'd like to, you were on the Board of Governors, you were shadow chancellor, that is to say you were one of the important, you were a leader of the opposition in parliament. When the crisis hit, what did it feel like how, when did you, how long did it take to realize how bad it was? So it took us probably longer than it should have to realize how bad it was. Uh, when things started to fall apart in 07, 08, we knew things were bad, but we didn't know there would be a full-on panic. I'd say by the time we got to somewhere between March and the summer of 08, we got it. And it wasn't easy to get, but we finally figured out that we were on the verge of something quite dark. Bear Stearns, and Le Bear Stearns almost goes under, Fed bails them out or arranges for bailout. And then Lehman Brothers does go under. What was that date? Uh, that was uh, around uh, a week ago, 10 years ago, so mid-September 2008. And when Lehman went down, what was that like, Kevin? Was that, that was a precipitating event. The skies are getting darker and darker. Suddenly Lehman goes down, lightning, thunder, it's bad. Is that right? So that is the conventional view. It's not happened to be my view, but that well, is the view. The man who was, uh, you, you, were, you were the captain of the ship at the time, or a captain. Well, I didn't always feel like I was a captain. I felt more like I was down in the galleys getting beaten up. But uh, I'll give you my sort of quick summary of that. Uh, the conventional wisdom, of course, is it all came down to Lehman Weekend and somehow the authorities in the U.S. in negotiations with the authorities in Britain had to figure out what to do with Lehman. Should Barclays Bank buy it or the rest? My judgment going into that weekend and my judgment 10 years later is this ship had sailed. We were already on the precipice of dark things. Had Lehman Brothers never existed, the crisis and the financial harm would have already been done. It was the weeks and weekends and months before that that really laid the predicate. Lehman, I think, has played a much bigger role in the narrative than I think it deserves. I see. All right. Your shadow chancellor in the conservative party in the waning, what turned out to be the waning months of the labor government of George Brown, you're not privy to... Gordon Brown. I beg your pardon, of Gordon Brown. There was, there was a British politician called George Brown in right. the uh, 60s as well. My, my history of British politics isn't that good. It was just a plain <laughs> misspeaking, I'm sorry to say. All right, so what is it like for you? 
Well, you know, we were spectators because we were in the minority, we were in the right. opposition. Um, but we had this election looming and essentially the election had been planned on the basis that the economy was going to be relatively, you know, well, and suddenly the, that dramatically changed. Um, we'd had a bit of a taste of it in Britain a year earlier with the run on Northern Rock, which was a, a mortgage lender in the north of England. Um, but it looked like that had been managed. Uh, it was only as it sort of brewed in the summer of 08 that we realized actually that it was the precursor of things to come rather than you know, a one-off did, event. The, it, correct me if I'm just playing into a caricature, but the Tory party would have plenty of connections in the city of London. Did you have people ringing you up uh, financial uh, figures in the city saying, George, this is serious. Was well, that do you kind know, of thing I, taking place? I, I certainly had uh, conversations with people who said, uh, we're on the edge of something very bad. You did. Um, in fact, there was a guy in finance, who I met actually in an American conference, uh, that he was British and I'm, I'm British, an American Enterprise Institute conference. And uh, he said, just watch what's about to happen. Um, so although we were spectators, the actual events, of course, being in Parliament, we were required then to take a view on how we were going to vote on various bailouts as and when they came and start to think about the cleanup job, which I thought would be coming my way pretty quickly. Uh, and in particular, the fiscal cleanup job, because uh, Britain had, had suffered both a hit to its revenues because right. of the uh, impact on um, the financial sector, which was a big contributor to government revenues, uh, and had already gone into the crisis, actually ill-prepared in my view, under that Labour government, because it had already been running a budget deficit after years of right. uh, economic growth. So we were ill-prepared and had taken a structural hit. So on the day I became the Chancellor, we had a 12% budget deficit, which was the largest in, of any of the major countries in the world. I want to come to that in a moment. First, Fed Chairman Al, then Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan testifying to Congress in the autumn of 2008, Quote, the crisis has turned out to be broader than anything I could have imagined. Those of us who looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equity, what he's saying there is those of us who believed that free markets were self-correcting, are in a state of shocked disbelief, close quote. Then, and in the decade that has followed, what effect have the events of 2008 had on your beliefs in the free market? So the cheeky answer to that is, well, maybe we should try capitalism, which we weren't practicing quite as perfectly as we purported going into it, and perhaps we should give it a shot now. I would say, secondly, that's the thing about panics. Panics are fundamentally different in 2,000 years of economic history than recessions. The Fed was created after the panic of 1907 to respond to these things. 100 years later, the Fed was a panic responder. So what would normally happen in recessions where markets clear at lower prices and policy responds right. tends to be fundamentally different in a regime of panic. So even if those who thought that um, uh, free market principles didn't hold up so well, I would suggest that panic environments are fundamentally different. Got it. George? Yeah, I, the view I took at the time uh, was that this really was different from a normal downturn. And this didn't require, therefore, the normal stimulative policies that would you, you might deploy. Um, and I was quite taken at the time by the work of uh, Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt uh, on financial crises uh, and the long tail that it was going to leave. And I, I was... A chancellor who reads economic theory, was that sound? <laughs> well, it was said, in fact, we tried to... 
uh, get Ken to come and work for the British government. Which really? He, which he was keen to do, but he had very good uh, family reasons why he couldn't move to the UK. Uh, but he was certainly a source of um, uh, counsel. And w of course, at the time, the prevailing economic opinion, uh, you know, articulated by people like Larry Summers and, and others, Larry was Summers, the Harvard economist who, yeah. Secretary who by the, the way, you know, I'm, I think is a very smart, uh, engaging, no one doubts his intelligence, engaging right? person. Yeah. But right. he, you know, he and others were absolutely of the view that uh, what was required was massive. Uh, fiscal stimulus. Right. Um, I didn't take that view. You know, I thought we were in, we, the, particularly for the UK, not having a reserve currency, uh, we were facing a potential double whammy of a fiscal crisis right. on top of a banking crisis. Um, I think where I disagreed actually was some of the policy making, uh, for example, on the European continent. I was all for monetary stimulus. I was actually not against right. very low rates, quantitative easing. Uh, in that situation, but that was combined with a fiscally conservative position. Um, so that was the sort of policy stance that we took in. Uh, it was one that I agreed with Mervyn King at the time, who was the governor of the Bank of England. Um, he, you know, of course, came to an independent judgment, but we worked together on it. And um, and you know, I, I think what I guess what um, what I didn't appreciate at the time was that ten years on, here we are, you know, uh, talking about it. And really, the the political impact uh, of that financial crisis, the right. essentially you know the system not delivering the rewards to working people uh, that they had come to expect because of the impact of a large financial crisis, has of course had a massive impact on the politics of Britain, Europe, and the United States. Uh, Kevin, here in the United States, the Fed flooded the system with liquidity, and then engaged in another couple of rounds of so-called quantitative easing, one huge round in 2012, one, another that lasted from 2013 to 2014. And the, you'll correct me if I get these figures wrong, but as best I can work it out, the Fed added about $2 trillion to its balance sheet. All right. You were, throughout this period, you raised warnings and cautions, and you're still doing so. And You've, the word that gets attached to both of you, actually, although for different reasons, you just touched on it. I want to come back to it. The word that gets attached to you is austerity. Austerity. Warsh wants austerity. He doesn't want, he doesn't want too much money in the system. Let me quote to you the Nobel Prize winning economist, Paul Krugman. Quote, Warsh is wrong about everything. Close quote. Would you care to explain yourself? Well, first of all, I should say I take that as a badge of honor. That, 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 that's actually done, you do. that's done more. That's done really more for my career than praise that I could have gotten from any quarter. So, all right. so, so I'm quite pleased with it. Um, economics is one of those funny things where those of us who have studied it and practiced it, like George and I, um, we recognize that it is in physics. And there are others that um, think that economics is quite fine-tuned. They know exactly what to do. So when George takes office, Dr. Summers and many others have the perfect prescription. But of course, history has shown us that that perfect prescription hasn't worked so well. So again, we see politics entering economics because economics doesn't answer all these questions. On the more broad fundamental question, my friends on the right, including many of your and my friends here at Hoover, in the darkest days of the crisis where, like George, my judgment was, this is a panic. We have to be incredibly aggressive. 
there was aggressive pushing liquidity into the pushing system. liquidity in the system. That's the goal and objective of the Federal Reserve to respond to panics. So quantitative easing one and the 14 other programs we rolled out in the darkest days of the crisis. I was a leader. I was a champion. Bernanke and I were really Ben Bernanke, then the Fed chairman, were, were side by side. Where the differences appear is in the post-crisis era, around the time that George takes office in England, and we come to recognize this is a global financial crisis. It's not about U.S. housing. It's not a narrow thing. It's a global panic. By the time we get to 2010 and 11, the economy is growing at around 2%. The economy is in a fundamentally different place. We're in a different regime. So then there's a question, what should the policy be? Should the policy be acting in a period of economic growth, even mild economic growth, as, as, as though we're in a crisis? or should the regime change with the underlying dynamics? So my friends on the left then got very upset and said, well, in the crisis, you were for quantitative easing one. In the post-crisis era, why aren't you for quantitative easing two through 27? Because the world changed. And to go back to George's last point, part of the reason why the politics in our, both of our countries are as strained as they are is because I think policy didn't adapt to the new regime. Quantitative easing outside of crises works very well for people that already have large amounts of assets. Kevin, hold on. Quantitative easing, pushing money into the system, there was no inflation. It didn't cause, two things. It didn't cause inflation. And you're a New Yorker. Everybody in New York was making a lot of money. Why didn't you just pipe down? Uh, George and I have friends on the right who predicted hyperinflation from yes. this, that things that George and I were pushing. Neither of us did. It is used as effective cudgel 10 years later by the likes right. of prominent New York Times columnists, but it's belied by the facts. After we get into this period, what we're concerned with is what all Americans, especially those on the left and center left should be concerned about, is monetary policy having huge distributional consequences in times of economic growth. 52% of our fellow Americans in the US do not have any financial assets, have no balance sheet wealth. Right. And so we wonder why quantitative easing has become a dirty word on talk radio, why Rush Limbaugh talks about QE and the aggressive Federal Reserve, because real Americans haven't gotten a wage increase until about 12 months ago. So quantitative easing works through what Chairman Bernanke describes as the portfolio balance channel, and it was the right thing to do in crisis. I'll give it to you another way. It works through the wealth effect, and the wealth effect works best for the wealthy. Right. George, as chancellor, you cut public, again, the, the austerity debate. You cut public spending, you cut public payrolls. Fewer employees when you left as chancellor than there were when you came on. And you cut taxes. All of this, again, the word that attaches to that is austerity. If I may, I would like to call, quote, Paul Krugman on George Osborne. <laughs> quote, couldn't make this up, quote, Osborne is articulate and he has a vision that's completely at odds with everything we actually know about macroeconomics. George, would you care to defend yourself? <laughs> well, um, people will take a judgment on how we did in government, but I was pretty proud of what we did. We turned the country around, got people into work. Uh, and it was, it was a combination of uh, dealing with the fiscal overhang, uh, the budget deficit, giving the country a, a clear direction. I think a lot of... Certainly, you know, in, in, in political office, part of the job is to just create confidence that you've got a plan and you know right. what you're doing and there's a direction for the country. And at the same time, uh, try and make the country more competitive. I mean, it, one of those 
uh, steps I took was to dramatically reduce the corporate tax rate from 28% to 17%, it's going to be 17%, the legislature changes, um, something, of course, the US has um, copied recently. And uh, it was a, uh, you Did know... Did you catch that? We're copycats now. Oh, so right, we take it as a compliment. Special relationship and all. Yes, yeah, all right. mm -hmm. okay. we take it as a compliment. The, uh, but no, I think it's a great, you know, it's a good point. I'm a supporter, by the way, of the that, that corporate tax cut here in the United States as well. I know it's controversial, but as an outside observer, I think it will make the US economy, you know, structurally more competitive. Um, and so we were trying to do things that were addressing the aftermath of the crisis, but also things that were for the long-term uh, competitive benefit of the country. Where I absolutely agree with Kevin is, and I think is a challenge for conservatives, is how do you address this challenge if the free market or the system is not delivering returns to labor equivalent to the returns to capital? Uh, and obviously, that's a kind of classic uh, space that Marxists come and fill with yes, various yes, yes. Uh, you know, the, the book's called Das Kapital. Um, but I think conservatives- Kevin and I are keeping a very careful eye yeah. on what you're about to well, say. Well, no, I think conservatives need to find their own answers, uh, and that's, to my mind at least, about spreading capital, making sure that the proportion of the population who do have savings, who do have decent retirements, uh, who do have uh, property, increases. That's a very conservative aspiration. I think controversially, I, I also thought you had to do more to re increase the return to labor. Um, and one of the tax cuts we did was to reduce income tax for the low paid or you know, by increasing the tax-free threshold, which is a bit controversial in conservative circles. Sometimes people don't like the idea that you're taking people out of tax, that, that sort of disconnects them with the right, system. Right. But it was a very effective tool for increasing people's take-home pay at a time when they were not getting those take-home pays from the economy, uh, those take-home pay increases. And ultimately, if you're someone like me who's pro-business, believe in free markets, etc., you've got to the working person has got to be your ally in that. And if they're not seeing the returns, or they're not benefiting, or they think only the rich people in New York or whatever are benefiting, then it's not gonna work for you. You know, the, all your ideas are not gonna carry in a democracy. And uh, I still would say, certainly speaking for the UK, that's the kind of urgent task for British conservatives. After we get through Brexit, well, <laughs> I'll come to that. I'll, I'll come to that. Hold on. Time out. I'll, I'll return to Brexit. Yeah. I'll return to Brexit. So a couple of the large issues today, and here I'm simply indulging myself. I want to hear what the two of you have to say about this. China. Uh, several months ago, President Trump imposed tariffs on about $50 billion in annual flow of Chinese goods into this country. Early this fall, he announced tariffs on another $250 billion. $250 billion plus $50 billion, that gets it up tariffs now on about half of what we bring in from China each year, starting in most cases at 10% and rising to 25%. Those are big tariffs. Now, A, first of all, is this the right approach? Just in general, is this the right approach? That's A. B is, what, do you, what, do you, what is the administration actually up to? Is this a negotiation? I now ask you to do something probably not that easy. Read the mind of Donald Trump. Is he negotiating or does this administration believe in protectionism as a good in itself? So I'm a has-been government bureaucrat. Uh, I have <laughs> met with the president only in the context of um, a couple of meetings after he became president and <coughs> my fateful interview with the president to be chairman of the Fed where he chose the other guy. So perhaps my sense of, of, of his priorities aren't exactly right. So with that said, I'd say this. 
the piece that's quite positive about what's happened is the American population and the president is now seems to my mind to be holding out China as the last deal that would be done. But Democrats and Republicans now have identified China as a problem. The benefit, of course, is we seem to be making progress anew in the last six months in our relationships with Europe, trying to put Britain at the front of the queue, not the back of the queue, as part of a, perhaps a new agreement coming out of Brexit. We have a new and hopefully improved deal with Mexico and Canada. And I think without the existence of China as a potential colder war enemy of the next 20 years, I'm not sure we'd be seeing this progress. So we have to look at the global trade community and ask what's happening. On the China question, I can't read the So hold on, I mind. want to make sure I understand that. Yeah. So everybody views China as a threat and therefore we're able to make real progress, renegotiate NAFTA on better terms with Mexico. We hope to get to China and after roughing up Europe, we're actually making progress on trade. That's, that's the argument? It is. Okay, terrific. I mean, terrific that I actually understand it. Go ahead. So, well, no, it means I didn't say it very well. So no, no, no. What, what, what about with China? I think the Chinese might perceive that they have a problem with the president or the Trump administration. Right. My judgment is that this sentiment had been just below the surface for a long time, perhaps during the Bush years and the Obama years. And even if you fast forward to a time that the president is no longer president, two, four, six years from now, this new view of China, this new view of two great powers coming into yes. some contact will be a dominant economic and national security dialogue for the next 20 years. You grant that, so, so, Yeah, absolutely. So my judgment is that um, great powers don't make the fight about soybeans or Boeing airplanes. Great powers don't sit down at a summit and say the question really is what's going to be our trade deficit next year? Great powers have the discussion of which you're familiar going back to a different time and that's the discussion that needs to be had and it is possible that this set of fights that are happening around tariffs are really just a beginning to a great power discussion between the two great powers of the 21st century. George on China. Is China about to do to the about? This is something that would take place over decades. Is China going to do to the United States what a century ago we did to the United Kingdom? That is to say, simply displace the United States as the preeminent economic and military power on the planet. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, I think the United States well, is still... Well, that me off as well. Thank goodness. All right. <laughs> well, as, you know, uh, as long as I'm careful crossing the road. I think... Um, yeah, I think the United States remains the most innovative and dynamic economy in the world. Here we are in uh, Silicon Valley, you know, it's still an incredible uh, source of uh, innovation and productivity in the global economy. Um, but, 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 uh, China is clearly re-emerging. Uh, it's been the largest economy for 18 of the last 20 centuries, so we shouldn't be surprised that it's going to be the largest economy uh, as well in this century. Uh, and like all powerful countries with uh, strong economies, it will start to throw its weight around. It's already doing that. Um, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I remember there was a country that unilaterally declared the Monroe Doctrine without consulting anyone else. So uh, <laughs> uh, you would expect in East Asia... That was after uh, you burned Washington, but we'll, all right. Well, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but that was a point President Obama made to us when we visited the White House. Ah, all right. Uh, he showed us the scorch marks. Um, but um, I think you'll find in East Asia you know, growing Chinese assertiveness, um, which is what you would expect of a country of that size, power, and um, uh, renewed um, political uh, will. 
And um, the question is how we're going to deal with it. Much bigger challenge if you are a near neighbor, much bigger challenge if you're a Vietnam, Philippines, South Korea, Japan. But again, that's you know, been a long part of their history, managing that relationship with the Chinese continent. I think for the West, uh, we have a choice. Do we either try and contain China or do we try and co-opt China? Uh, oh, it, if you try and contain it uh, or confront China, mm -hmm. I personally doubt that the West has the political will. Indeed, the collapse of the TPP agreement demonstrates really that uh, partnership. partnership the, 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 actually, there was the, the, the West, the political systems of the West do not have the stomach to try and construct a series of alliances around China, economic and military, to deploy resources on the region in the size that would be required to attempt a containment. It would also quite probably lead to uh, a confrontation that could be uh, extremely uh, violent and um, destructive. There is another option, which we, in my view, should at least try, which is uh, co-option. In my experience of dealing with the Chinese and the Chinese Communist Party, uh, they put an absolute premium on stability. Uh, that is part of the history of that country. Uh, now, they equate stability with the continued existence of the Communist Party. We might disagree with it, but that's their view. All I know is that they are potential partners in a stable global order. Uh, and if that means a bigger table for them in international organizations, which you would expect given their size, fine, because that's, a, that is a, that's an outlet for their ambition, which is a lot healthier than what normally happens with rising powers, which is they go and invade their neighbor. But you know, I, you know, with, you know, if I give you one example, um, China wanted to create something called the Asia Infrastructure Development Bank. Now, there is already something this called- is, What era, what, what time? This was in about 2014. While you were yes. Oh, all right. uh, 2014, 2015. Now, there is something already called the Asia Development Bank, different organization. And actually, the United States and Japan, in my view, made a mistake, and they shut China out of that organization, mm -hmm. the Asia Development Bank. Wouldn't give it a bigger role when it asked for it. So the Chinese leadership said, we'll create a parallel institution, the Asia Infrastructure Development Bank. And uh, Britain was the first of the big Western powers to sign up to it. Now, all but the United States have. And I would argue that creating multilateral development banks, getting your currency into the IMF basket of currencies, these are all great outlets for Chinese ambition because they are essentially uh, supporting a global order that the United States in particular, but Britain as well, helped to create. And, and we they're were, potentially uh, quite insufficient. But to George's point, perhaps we try. We can have the members of all the multinational institutions we want, but we won't know what their end game is. I should say just two quick things, if I might, Peter. First, um, the transition from Britain to the US from one century to the next, those that preach secular stagnation in the US, the great and the good in economics profession who cover this, one, one thing they're implicitly saying is our best days of growth are behind us. Right. We have right. our century. Right. They're not quite putting it this way, but we need to step aside and let someone else have this century because we somehow have lost the will, the ability. I don't believe a bloody word of that. You don't. And there's plenty of good economic data over the, even the last 14 months that would suggest maybe we're not stuck with 2% forever. We could grow again. The 21st century could be ours. So my own judgment is we shouldn't give up on any of this. This isn't just a provincial right. American speaking, so, so, but so, so, projecting the strength in the world is essential. So can, let me frame it this way. They're bigger than we are. 1.3 billion is against 330 million of us, and how many of you? Well, they always were bigger. Oh, that's, that's true. Not a new, well, no, 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 that's, no, no, that's not new. That's not a new feature. No, that's not new. Bear with me. How many of you are? 65, 65 million. 65 million. All right. And soon, this will take place within your lifetime, George. I can tell you, look, right. Hale, 
uh, they'll have a bigger economy. They'll be able to buy more aircraft carriers. They'll just have more purchasing power mm -hmm. as a nation, not per person. So the only hope over the long time of staying long term, of staying in the game, is innovation, is growth. So the question is, does democracy, do free markets, do things that we have inherited, we can screw them up, but we can, we've inherited, do those institutions give us an advantage over their system of state control, which is of course now explicit, they're still formally communist, does that give us enough of an advantage to, to play the long game? It gives us a massive advantage and it's underappreciated, not least on college campuses like the one where we're meeting. You're right that China is bigger, but they're also older and poorer. So the questions for you Chinese- mean demographically old, you're not, right, right, right. The questions for them are they've gotten old before they've gotten rich and they've decided that maybe they need to get young again. They also find themselves having grown from a poor country to one that has GDP per capita, some measure of wealth per individual, of around $7,000. There are some experiments in that, but going from where they are to where we are, GDP per capita five or six times that, we have no experience of that happening in all of economic history absent a revolution. So the challenges they have are very real. They've come to the big table. They can be members of these multinational organizations, but we ought not think like we did perhaps of the Japanese a couple of decades ago. They have it all figured out and we're just wasting away. Right. right. So I've just uh, read a terrific book, uh, which I was telling you about before we had, about uh, a KGB defector called Oleg Gordievsky in the 1980s. And of course, what he revealed, he was a British spy, was that we thought this Soviet apparatus was all thinking, all knowing, brilliant, had all these amazing plans, the KGB was ever, it turned out, of course, they were absolutely hopeless uh, and on their last legs and collapsed uh, famously at the end of that decade. Now, China is not the Soviet Union, but I suspect if you're sitting in Beijing, you are thinking, oh, we're sitting on top of this huge population, there is no retirement provision, there's no health care, uh, environmental degradation is a serious problem. And if you actually listen to the Chinese president, that is what he addresses. You know, the, his plans are all about trying to fix many things that we would uh, take for granted in the West. So you know, I'm a massive believer in democracy, free markets, innovation that that brings and creativity, and by the way, the basic human rights that that supports. Um, and uh, I think it's notable that in, here we are, the home of tech, some of the greatest companies in the world, born here in the last 30 years. What's the one bit of the Chinese economy that has really impressed over the last 10, 15 years? It's been the tech sector. And what's interesting about the tech sector? It was the one bit that the Chinese Communist Party wasn't running. It was the one bit oh, that was not state-owned industry. Interesting question now for China, uh, as uh, this assertive regime starts to take more of an interest in the tech sector, uh, will the creativity in the Chinese tech sector continue? Uh, we shall see. But, uh, but on, them, on themselves. Yeah, but I, you know, so look, I, I, as I say, I'm, um, it's an amazing civilization, the Chinese civilization. They're very industrious people. But I think if we're sitting here thinking they've got the master plan, we haven't, they've got a Politburo that runs everything, we've got a divided Congress or a divided House of Commons, you know, I think that's a grass is greener. Uh, fallacy. You know, okay. I think they've got a lot of challenges, which you know they are 
impressing some people in how they're addressing, but they are quite domestic focused. You know, a lot of their effort and energy is focused on the problems they've got at home rather than asserting themselves uh, abroad. Right. But George and I, I think, would both say we'd rather have our cards than theirs, Peter. Got it. Thank you. I feel better. I feel better. Our mahjong tiles run best. <laughs> <laughs> Brexit. Brexit. Yes. Referendum in 2016, British voters decide by about 52 to 48 percent to leave the European Union, despite the urgings of Prime Minister David Cameron and his government. Notably, especially notably, the then Chancellor, mm. George Osborne, uh, to vote remain instead of leave. Okay, you know what's coming. Roughly. Ross Clark in the London Spectator in April, quote, in a paper, this is as when you're chancellor mm. and as the issue is percolating, the referendum is coming. In a paper signed off by George Osborne, which the former chancellor should not be allowed to forget, I'm doing my bit to keep it in your memory, George, mm. the finest minds at the Treasury came up with two scenarios for the aftermath of a vote to leave the EU. In one, GDP is down about, what does it say, 3.6% after two years, unemployment would rise by half a million. There's a second scenario that's even worse. Mm. In the event, Britain does vote to leave, and two years later, GDP is up, not down, by about mm. 3%. And unemployment had fallen, not risen, and indeed fallen by this past spring to the lowest level mm. since 1975. Well, first of all, uh, the last thing I wish is ill on the British economy, which I worked very hard yes. to turn around. But it pains me to point out, we've gone from the fastest growing of the G7 nations to the slowest. We've gone from the fastest growing of the EU. Since, since the yes, referendum. Since almost Brexit. on a dime. You know, really? All right, all right. From the fastest growing of the EU countries to the slowest. In fact, now I think we're competing with Italy on how slow we're going to grow. Uh, we devalued our currency by 15%, uh, which made the whole country poorer, even if they didn't immediately feel it and only feel it when they travel abroad. But it's imported inflation, squeezed living standards, and we haven't even left. So there were two predictions made by the Treasury. Uh, when I was there. The first was, what would happen if we voted to leave the EU and then left, triggered the exit procedure and went? And in, for various modeling reasons, we also couldn't assume that the independent bank would do anything. But that has, didn't actually happen. We haven't left the EU. We did another model uh, that was, what's the medium term consequences of leaving mm -hmm, the EU? Mm -hmm. uh, and that prediction is virtually identical to the prediction which the government currently adheres to and has produced, and it's a Brexit sporting government, is virtually identical to the prediction that the Bank of England uh, operates off and other international bodies and private sector forecasters make. It pains me to say all this because it's the last thing I want for my country, but there is absolutely no doubt Britain is poorer because of the Brexit vote uh, and relative to what it could have been, its economic performance has been much weaker. That is sad. Uh, there's still a lot at stake at how we leave the EU. Mm -hmm. uh, the form of our relationship with the EU once and we And you leave, will leave the EU by March 2019. Well, it's, it's my view that is certainly the most likely thing that's going to happen. Um, there is a, just, there's a question about right. whether there'll potentially be a second referendum before we leave. But I think the most likely outcome is we go at the end of March. What's clear is there's zero agreement in the British cabinet, in the British parliament, in the British body politic about what the long-term relationship with the EU should be. So... And that's still very much for, uh, for grabs. Are we a close uh, partner of the EU, like Norway, Switzerland? Or do we have no relationship that is particular with the EU that we don't have with other countries in the world? And what? in my view, if you cut yourself off from your nearest trading partners, uh, where half our trade goes, 
then we will be doing further damage to our economy. Right. And watch, by watch. the way, just yes. to make one point, Peter, yes. the EU, Britain joined the EU under a Conservative government. Conservatives believe in free trade agreements. Conservatives believe in Western alliances. The idea that the EU, it was always the left in Britain that was against the EU. Right. And it uh, pains me as a Conservative to see my movement cut in half with half of the Conservatives saying it's somehow conservative to suddenly want to pull out of an international... Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher got more and more and more skeptical. No, no, I was like, Margaret Thatcher created the single market that is the thing we are choosing to leave. She created... Yes, she, that's the whole point, that it was a sing, it started she, as a single market and then, then the, more and more of this political unification Yes, and we, and we stayed out of the euro. Uh, and that was negotiated again by Conservative Prime Ministers, John Major, uh, building on the work of Margaret Thatcher. So Margaret Thatcher campaigned to keep Britain in the EU, took massive steps to integrate the single market, signed the Single European Act, and would never, and indeed this was confirmed by her closest advisor, who's still alive, Charles Powell, would never ever have voted to leave the EU. And, 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 it's, and it's a faux conservative memory that somehow sound conservatives are anti-European. That was never the case, is not the case now. And it's watch, you know, watch the fine economist Kevin Warsh agree with the following proposition. Brexit represents a huge opportunity for Britain. There will, of course, be transitional costs. It's experiencing some right now. There will, of course, be some time getting the, getting the um, politics of it all sorted out. But the opportunity to enter into trade agreements with the United States well, why shouldn't we even bring Britain into NAFTA? It's, a, it's painful for George. We can understand why. He's just articulated it quite brilliantly. But really, it's a huge opportunity. Watch Kevin Warsh agree with that. So um, I would say no country is an island, but of course I have George next to me, so I, I <laughs> would hesitate. I can think of one or two. Part of the defense, and George certainly doesn't need my help, is in all these forecasts, we didn't know that the U.S. would be suffering after year 10, a huge economic resurgence. The global growth is coming higher. And again, a parochial American view, when the U.S. economy booms, that has huge benefits for everyone else. Right. Second to your point. Um, if meaning, the United meaning things would be even worse in Britain if our economy weren't booming. George and his colleagues, yes. George and his colleagues have a much more difficult task in forecasting because it's a small island nation with whom the world wants to do business. When the world slows down, it's a little bit of a challenge and when the world speeds up. Second, the United States would be serving its own interests, and I should think the interest of George and his successors, by putting Britain at the front of the queue. There are obviously restrictions for the prime minister in terms of the negotiations she could have with the U.S., given that she still remains a member of many of these uh, obligations pre-Brexit. But it would strengthen her hand if the Europeans and others thought that there was a viable alternative to be part of a new NAFTA, to be the strongest trading partner with the U.S., to make that relationship even more close. But it's not obvious that the U.S. has been putting Britain front and center, and I would suggest that would be a step in the right direction. All right. Um, um, can I just, uh, well, let, me, let me pick up on that. I mean. I'm a strong. I'm, 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 I'm taking a, pot shots of the man who was no, no, no. the chancellor. Of course, no, no, I'm a great believer in a, a stronger economic relationship, even than we have with the United States. Um, but I've never thought of it as a binary choice. You know, it's sometimes said we have to leave the EU to do more business with America or more business with China. Uh, that's not the case. Germany sells twice as much to China as a proportion of its GDP than we do. Uh, we were trying to sign uh, the. TTIP, which was the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, with the United States while we were in the EU as part of an EU agreement. 
you can do more trade, but let's be clear, leaving the EU is the biggest act of protectionism in British history, right? We are introducing tariffs, barriers, uh, regulatory barriers uh, to that's trade. That's the default position? No, well, even if, even if you get a free trade agreement with the EU, and that's proving elusive, in at least yes. in terms of the discussions inside the British system, let alone with the Europeans, even if you remove the tariff barriers, that is only one part of what creates a free trade area in the modern era. You've got its standardization of regulation and product specification and all that kind of thing. And we are, even if you get the best possible trade deal possible with um, the European Union, indeed the model being touted by some is the Canadian trade yes, agreement yes. that the EU has. Uh, it is still a massive act of protectionism. It is introduced, yes, you know, Canada, fine, has reached this point where it's got a good deal with the EU from a position where it had no deal. We're already part of this single market that Margaret Thatcher created. We are pulling ourselves out of it to go to the Canadian position. That is protectionism. It doesn't matter how you dress it up, doesn't matter if you say you're a free trade champion, you know, conservative who believes in all these things. The facts are it introduces barriers to trade with some of the biggest, most productive economies on our doorstep, like the French economy, the German economy, the Dutch economy, the Belgian economy, uh, uh, which we are closely integrated with. And I'm all for doing more business with the US, all for doing more business with the rest of the world. It shouldn't come at the price of doing more business with Europe. Okay, last question, and I've got last questions full stop because we're getting short on time and you're wanted in London, I'm told, and you're wanted all kinds of places. Um, the political disarray in your country, well, we'll come to our country, but in your country is just remarkable. Two, two years after the referendum. Not unconnected. You it can't, was... you can, the, the, prime, the <laughs> prime minister, you, you mentioned that the cabinet is divided, the house is divided, yeah. both parties are divided, the country yeah. is unsure. All right, if you had. That's because essentially the system cannot deliver the promises that were made for Brexit and that is tearing the Conservative Party apart. You know the Prime Minister, you know her likely successors. It's a small world in London and it's a small world at the top of the Tory party. You know them all. If you had three sentences, I give you no more since we're running tight on time, to offer to the Prime Minister, whoever he or she may be a month or two from now, what would you say? You've got to have a strong relationship with the European continent because however pro-Atlantic and pro-American you are, you're not going to be able to tow this island off into the middle of that ocean. It's still going to be 20 miles off the coast of France. And that's going to be our principal economic partner and free trade conservatives believe in doing free trade with our neighbours. Your advice. To, I don't, does to, that, is that three my sentences? My advice to George? That was, well, that was, a couple of sentences were a little on the long side, but you still get an, alpha. You get an alpha for that one. Yes, so what would your advice be to the Prime Minister? Whoever he or she may be in well two months. With any good fortune, it's someone I've known for 25 years, so we wouldn't just be restricted to three sentences. Um, absent that, uh, my advice would be, this is as seismic a time in global trade as we've had for 30 years. For the last 35 years, we've all been uh, looking at our economies in a time of more integrated globalization, integrated capital markets, integrated trade. On the doorstep in the US, on the doorstep in China and throughout Europe, that fundamental premise that a more integrated global economy is good is being challenged. This is that seismic moment. We will decide whether we're gonna have a strong, reformed, integrated global economy with fruits and wisdom for everyone, or they're gonna to race to our corners. And if they, we, we have corners, there's likely to be a Chinese-centric economy and an American-centric economy. And for those that our friends with both, like in the United Kingdom, 
they might feel as though um, those are two systems they can build into. The reality is we would all be much worse off. All right. That was a bit more than three sentences, I'm afraid. But still, but you, 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 all right. This country, and we close it out here. Economist Martin Feldstein, as we record this, this is a piece that appeared in the Wall Street Journal just yesterday. Another, I'm quoting him. You both know, you know. I know Marty well, so does George. All right. Another long, deep downturn. I usually try to end these programs on a kind of upbeat. Mm -hmm. Another long, deep downturn may soon roil the U.S. economy and the Fed will not have enough room to cut rates, close quote. Rates are already low and we're headed, the cycle is old, and we're headed into a recession. This could be a catastrophe. Kevin, cheer so, us up. So I'll cheer you up as best I can. Uh, Marty is right in this extent. There will be another recession. It will be dark. The idea that somehow we figured everything out and this boom will go on forever defies thousands of years of economic history. As a result, policymakers in the U.S. today must do what George did some time ago there, which is prepare for a future that we do not know. We need to buy insurance in the good times so that when times are bad, we can put a floor under our economy and that the recession doesn't race away from us. My judgment on this is similar to Marty's. Not that we're on the front end of recession. In fact, the economy has been improving the last five quarters and has real momentum that neither the Federal Reserve nor the International Monetary Fund nor fine scholars you've referenced ever predicted. Because we copied his corporate tax cut, but go ahead. Good economic policy is really important and stopping trying to strangle the U.S. economy might be equally important. In spite of our very best efforts to do harm to this economy Hold since on. the crisis. You give the Trump administration high marks for economic policy. I give Let's the just Trump high marks for regulatory and tax policy. All right. Fiscal policy, we still have big deficits, but that's another show. Spending, on, is, go a, ahead. spending is a totally other show. Okay. Um, we need to buy insurance now, and I think Marty is right in this sense. When the next recession happens, the Federal Reserve will not have either the ammunition or the credibility on current course to respond. That is something that is very difficult for the current chairman to create, because that was a problem long in the making. Well, wait a minute. How do you fix it? You can't just end there. How do you buy the insurance? Well, I think you do it by, in my Raise view. Raise rates even more quickly than they're doing now? So what I would have That'll done. Make, then now, you won't be welcome back on see, the island of Manhattan. You're, now, you're, now you're getting really tough, and I won't reveal the discussions I had with our president. But my judgment in 2010, 11, and 12 was similar to my judgment in 2018. The quantitative easing we did in the crisis was right in QE1 and wrong subsequently. We go into this period of the strongest economy today in the U.S. since 2004. And yet we still have an emergency size balance sheet. We should shrink the balance sheet first, put that emergency ammunition back in our pockets because we might need to use that and other things later. Rebuild our credibility in the strongest economy in 20 years. So the future, which neither Marty nor I can predict very well, we will have some ability to respond. Balance sheet first, interest rates next. Got it, all right. Kevin has just offered advice to President Trump and I, it would be only good manners to let our visitor have the last word, don't you reckon? But I'd like it to be directed to President yes, Trump. Yes, no, 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 could. exactly. Yes. We've done We've done yeah. the prime minister. Yeah. Now, what would your advice be to the president of the United States? Well, I, actually, I... Who's already copied your corporate tax rates cuts. Yeah, and well, and, um, I, I would say the tax changes have been the right ones. And I don't buy, you know, we were talking, we've been, you've been throwing various, uh, you know, academic economists at us through this interview. Um, the idea that... Um, you could pick a moment in the cycle when it's the right time to do your tax cut is nonsense. You, you've got to get 
it, politics is the art of the possible. Mm. And if the president had not moved with the Congress in that first year in office to get the tax change, it would never have happened. And the US has a much more sensible corporate tax rate and offshore tax regime that stops vast profits being trapped overseas. So I think that's been a really good economic change with lasting benefits for the US. And indeed, forced other countries in the world to uh, you know, become more competitive. Second, I think the deregulation that's happening in many of the agencies has been uh, a good thing. Um, I disagree on some of the environmental things, but broadly speaking, uh, I think it's been a good thing. Uh, so those are the two, you know, those are two big ticks uh, that the administration get. The big, you know, query I have is over trade policy. You know, what um, is... What's you really the, up to? At the moment, it's been, we talked about this earlier, there's been a lot of saber rattling. It's not unheard of the US administrations to uh, take action uh, against Europeans and others. Um, and now it's beginning to look a bit worrying. The, the scale of the uh, confrontation with China on trade, and you were giving the numbers earlier, looks to me like the one thing that you can predictably say would have a real damage to on American growth and uh, global prosperity. So uh, that's where I would be most concerned. And my advice to the president, who I think, as I understand it, uh, checks, so checks, checks the Dow every day and all that, is uh, you don't have to inflict that uh, self-harm. So and I understand he quite enjoyed his trip to Britain. The, the president? The president. I think, okay. I think the Prime Minister May may not have enjoyed it quite as much. He, he gave a... Um, he let her have it in he, some... He got an very, interesting so, so let me... I told a lie. That wasn't the last question. Here's the last question. It's, it's loose and subjective and so forth, but I'd still like to know, are you optimistic about... I'll come to you, but are you optimistic about this economy and the politics of this country over, let us say, the next three years? It is within our power to make the next three years a boom, to continue the strength of the last 14 months. The country is divided. That division didn't begin with President Trump. It's been going on for a long time. The division in our politics has much more to do with the financial crisis, the panic, and the response than most modern commentators would give credit. 52% of our fellow Americans are finally getting a wage increase because they didn't get any asset wealth from quantitative easing. In 2018 and On the 19, contrary, all, the, all those 52% might have had was a savings account, and the low interest rates meant they earned essentially nothing on their savings, if, right? If the, that's right. If the okay. economy does what it is showing traction to doing, real Americans are going to get their first real wage increase in a generation. Animal spirits can be back. There is every reason to believe that our politics will follow our economics instead of the other way around. I am an optimist. There are real risks. Okay. But this is this can be America's century, and so I'm not going to end on a dark word in spite of your best efforts to make me negative. We've got a challenge to do. The U.S. leads the world on many of these issues. The president leads this country. In a very non-provincial sense, I would say it is in this administration's hands to make the next three years really boom. Well, that was pretty damn encouraging. Match that. What about the next three years of, for Britain? Well, I, I, the central task facing Britain is to manage Brexit and to come up with a relationship with the European Union that is close, productive, and delivers the benefits that current membership does, both economic right. benefits, security benefits. Are you benefits. optimistic you'll pull it off? Um, I'm not particularly optimistic, but that doesn't mean there isn't a route through. Right. And I think ultimately, you know, remember that when the kind of populists and the nativists say to our populations, what the hell have you got to lose? 
peace, stability, and prosperity is a hell of a lot. All right. George Osborne, Kevin Warsh, thank you. Thank you, Peter. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.